Welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast with your host, Darren Herman. This podcast explores the world of sports cards from a variety of angles. Being a hobbyist collector for over 30 years, a professional software investor and angel investor in and around the card space, and a proud father who is raising children who collect and appreciate sports cards. If you want to learn more about Midlife Crisis Cards, head over to midlifecrisiscards.com where you can read his journey to card collecting, his history, and find some awesome individual cards to purchase from his personal collection. Or check out our brand new product, the Cardboard Box, a personalized and hand-selected box of cards that arrive at your front door. On the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast, we explore the convergence of Darren's worlds in the sports card industry, where hobby meets business. Without further ado, Please meet our host, Darren Herman, a.k.a. at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram and dherman76 on Twitter. Hello and welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. It's Darren Herman, a.k.a. Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram and dherman76 on Twitter. It's been a few days since we taped this podcast and I'm coming back to it and want to sort of update uh, everybody since we've taped it. I don't know if you've seen the Alton Insights Twitter uh, handle, which is Alton at in Alton Insights. Um, yesterday, they recorded and covered the record trading day on Rally Road. And yes, we're jumping directly into fractional ownership right off the bat. Rally Road is one of a handful of players in the sports card and memorabilia fractional ownership space. And uh, they tied the October 6th record with nine assets trading at once. And they have an asset, the Pokemon Complete Set, which takes the highest ROI crown from Michael Jordan's game-worn sneakers at plus 500%. Uh, to give some context, the since these assets have launched, the 1999 Pokemon First Edition is up 200%. The 2003 Upper Deck LeBron Exquisite card up almost 96%. The Hermé Bordeaux Croc Birkin, <laughs> well, actually not a sports card, but something my wife would be interested in, is up 11%. The 1939 Ted Williams card up 3%. Actually, the only uh, the only uh, asset that they've recorded, um, at least that Alton has pointed out, that's down is the 1924 Babe Root Bat. Um, which is uh, down about 9%, which is actually surprising. Um, but uh, it, it's fascinating what's going on in the fractional space, and, and we're going to explore a ton of that uh, today. And we've got uh, uh, Alton here that is tracking the data and tracking all of the IPOs within the fractional uh, ownership space within the card market. And so... I just wanted to give a little context and color as to how fast the market is moving ahead of uh, the interview with Russell from Alton Insights. And oh, by the way, since this is the Business of Sports Card podcast, um, there was a huge announcement that shook the uh, sports card world um, this week. And that announcement was that Nat Turner, who is a dear friend of mine uh, and someone who I've had the chance to work alongside, um, uh, made an offer alongside two private equity funds to acquire uh, Collectors Universe, 
we all know it as the home of PSA. And so we'll see how that plays out, but it's exciting. Um, and I'm excited to see what Nat and the team can do uh, to continue uh, PSA's dominance uh, of the sports card space. So without further ado, let's dive in to this podcast. All right. Welcome to another Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. Today, I am super excited to welcome Russell Lieberman of Alton Insights. Super excited to have you, Russell. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Darren? That doesn't sound very good. Have some enthusiasm there. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Happy to chat. <laughs> That's great enthusiasm. All right, Russell. A lot of us uh, in the industry know you for running Alton Insights, which is the leading community for fractional share alternative asset investing. But before we even get into alternative asset investing and those fancy buzzwords, you know, how did you get into this space? I know you're a collector. You know, how did you get into it? Tell us a little bit about your story. My year has gone the way I believe a lot of other people's has in that I uh, was a passionate sports card collector growing up. And I took a 20, 15 year hiatus from the hobby. Um, and then, is. yep. And then uh, being stuck at home, started going through some old cards, started looking at the values of those cards. Uh, remembered how much fun it was to go grab my Beckett magazine and see uh, the <laughs> monthly, if you can believe it, monthly yeah. uh, change in price of my cards was. And um, started. Uh, with basketball cards this year, buying in uh, like Q1 of 2020 and the price appreciation of those purchases has been amazing. Um, I haven't stopped buying, even though the card values are now pretty crazy. Um, but just for the love of the hobby, got back into it. So who's who's the guy? Who's who's the card? Like what's what's who are you tracking and, and buying these days? Yeah, people hate this, but for me, it's still uh, it's still Zion. Hey, I like that bet. You know, he was quiet at the end of last year. Card prices came down maybe a little bit, and he could be the, uh, you know, all he needs to do is put up one 30-point game to start the season, and I guarantee you he's, yeah. like, going to pop. <laughs> I could see that. Tantalizing upside. Tantalizing. Unbelievable. Love, love his game. It, do it doesn't remind me of anybody else's game. Um, his card prices are already out of control for the small sample size but uh we'll see i mean it's it's if you're betting on the next generational player uh it's not a bad place to to park your money well i guess using zion i didn't think i was going to go here but i guess using zion as you know excitement and energy and market enthusiasm you know when zion came into the nba everyone was excited about that and he had more momentum around him than than most other players that have come in over the last decades and then when i think about the business side of the sports card space which is ultimately where we want to go with this conversation and you know that's why mm -hmm. we're here today you know if i look at all the sectors that have seen innovation that have seen capital investment that have seen hiring uh, employees um, that have seen you know, all of sort of what we would call business momentum, that's the fractional ownership space. Like that's the new space. That's the new, the new kids on the block in the sports card space. Uh, it's not new in other sectors. Um, but, you know, right. we've seen companies like, you know, Rally and Otis and, and Alt and others sort of come in and, 
you know, set up shop and, and, uh, raise a ton, some of them raise a ton of money and, and, uh, there's a lot of excitement there, but you know, what, what are, what, what is this space? <laughs> I, I think, you know, for me, it's, I can buy a piece of a card, but not ever touch it, but actually own a piece. And that share probably goes up in value or down in value over time. Um, but I'd love, you know, this is the space that Alton studies and you, that's you, uh, and so, and your team. And so, you know, give us a little primer to start off this conversation on fractional ownership. Uh, and then we'll go into what's going on in the space. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, no, it's been an amazing year for fractional ownership platforms and for uh, sports cards and sports memorabilia on those platforms. Uh, fractional ownership is a FINRA regulated legitimate way for uh, anyone to uh, own and participate in the appreciation of assets that most of us could otherwise not afford. Um, so you know, whether it's your Michael Jordan 1986 uh, Fleer rookie card, uh, I can't go out right now and buy that. But if I think that that card's going to, to appreciate over the next, even as, as uh, soon as, let's call it 90 to 120 days or, you know, three to five years, I can now go invest uh, in that speculation towards that appreciation. And that's what fractional ownership is. So I'd love to dig in here. And, you know, this is a hot space and, you know, I, I, I never apologize to the listeners of this podcast because I told, you know, that when you come into this podcast, you know, we dive deep into the business of it. And so, you know, I'd love to dive deep. And so steer, steer me any which way, which is, um, you know, let's say that is that, you know, 1986 Jordan, um, you know, how do you decide how many shares there are? Like in, in, you know, and then what determines the value of those shares? How do we, how do, how do we understand that? Yeah. So, um, let's, let's walk through maybe how a dollar moves within the space to sort of explain that a little better. Um, so first of all, you and I spoke a lot about grading first, uh, these marketplaces are going and purchasing a card that has a certain value based off its <clears throat> PSA, BGS, uh, SGC, or. I guess now CGC grade, yeah. um, based on that valuation, there, there is a legal process where they actually, uh, they partner with a broker dealer to register this asset as a security. Uh, and then they have a, a mini IPO where they, it's up to the discretion of the marketplace that's bringing the asset to market to decide uh, what the valuation is. Obviously they want it to be as close to accurate um, in, the, in the marketplace, recent marketplace as possible. Uh, and then they can decide on the price per share and total uh, shares. Typically that's based on demand. Um, the, I've seen these marketplaces issue more shares if they think there's just gonna be broader demand uh, for a desire to own shares of that asset. Yep. Um, but, but there is no exact science. It, it's up to the discretion of the marketplace. They just have to notify um, the SEC of their intention. So where does this sector come from? You know, where was it before sports cards? So it, it's a mix of different asset classes in alternatives. It's, it started really with, um, there's masterworks for artwork. Mm -hmm. There's uh, rally road, which started with cars. Um, and now what you're seeing, and, and then there's my racehorse for racehorses. Um, that was a few years ago. And now that I think, um, 
you know, you see it in the venture capital dollars that are flowing into the space. Now that we're past the proof of concept phase, uh, and we know that this is this is a product that people want to participate in. Um, now you're seeing it across different asset classes. It could be luxury watches and Birkin bags. It could be um, sports cards, sports memorabilia is obviously a big one. It could be wines and spirits. Um, you know, it, it, it's exciting the potential that we continue to see. It could even be uh, video games. Just today, a GoldenEye graded N64 game came out from 1997, which was like my favorite game growing up. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's fun to see. Um, and the value of these, they're typically based on most recent auction prices. So that there's legitimate, um, they're tying the, the market cap of these assets to legitimate uh, recent transactions. So it's exciting. So who's like the, the retail buyer of this? Is this like, or, or any type of buyer, you know, is this people that are taking a portion of their private wealth and, you know, uh, looking at, you know, fractional asset ownership similar to, you know, buying public equities or is it, you know, uh, who, who, who does this? Like, where is it today and where do, where do you see it going? Yeah. What's exciting is it's, it's actually a mix of it's the same audience that we see in sports cards where you have investors and you have speculators. Uh, there are people that are coming onto these, these platforms um, and some of them want to buy into these assets and they want to hold it for, let's call it up to five years. Um, and then you have individuals who come in and they just want to hold it for 120 days and they want to trade their shares on a secondary market, you know, 120 days after participating in the IPO because they're a short term speculator. So the audience is not that dissimilar from the sports card market where, um, you know, depending on your strategy or what you collect, you may hold a certain player, a certain set for a, a period of time uh, and you may never sell it. Um, that's part of your collection. Um, then on the flip side of that, there are cards that you could experiment with and speculate with where, uh, you know, you're happy to sell them, even if it's in a quick time frame. Yeah. and it's all about getting that, that capital return as opposed to, you know, you, you kind of get your collector fix otherwise, if you, if you need it. So you've mentioned now twice, 180 days. And so what I'm, what I'm inferring from that, and you'll correct me, uh, which is, let's say it's that 1986 Jordan, uh, you know, it's going to go fractionally owned on some platform out there. Uh, I, I believe that that fractional card will then go through initial public offering in some way. Uh, and a bunch of folks will then buy shares of that card. Um, uh, and so where does the 180 days sort of come in or 120 days sort of come in off that? Uh, is that like the lockup period that you'd see in public equities? Yeah, exactly. So there is a 90 day lockup period post IPO, um, before these, uh, assets will, will enter a trading window or begin being offered, um, as available to trade on a secondary market. Uh, the 120 days just comes in, in that it, it may not be 90 days. Exactly. It's typically in that range between like, let's call it 90 and 120, uh, after an IPO, then you'll see an asset then appear on a secondary market. Hmm. Interesting. So, you know, it's a fascinating space, you know, for me, to be honest, I've never 
bought a sports card uh, share. Um, for me, it's touching and feeling the card, and you know, I like to be able to reach out and touch it. But as I think about my own wealth and where it concentrates, or you know, where, I, where what my portfolio looks like of my own wealth, um, you know fractional ownership of, you know, cards, autos, wine, et cetera, you know, uh, gets really interesting. And I'm an art, big art fan myself. And, and, uh, I don't have any fractional shares of art, but, um, I do get it. Um, and I imagine that, you know, the new generations coming up and through now are probably more open and, dis- uh, and have a greater disposition to this opportunity than, than previous, um, with, you know, similar platforms like Robinhood and others that are getting people used to things like, you know, coming in and out of assets pretty quickly. Um, would you say that's probably more true or less true? Exactly. I mean, that's what's so exciting. So not only do you get access to an asset that you can't afford uh, to buy the entire, let's call it card in this case, um, you, you get access to an investment that you can't otherwise make. Um, it, it This is effectively... You mentioned Robinhood. These platforms, these fractional marketplaces, are effectively the retail version, um, accessing, giving access to people that can't afford these assets, um, the ability to participate in the upside of them, um, and that's obviously really exciting. Super interesting. Uh, all right, so I think we all have a sense of what fractional ownership is. You've laid that out super nicely for us. So my question to you is, well, what's Alton? Like, I understand what, what fractional is, but what is Alton doing in this space? Yeah. Um, so Alton Insights is the go-to source for data, for research and news in the in this fractional share alternative asset investing world. Uh, so we pride ourselves on helping investors make smart decisions in these alternative assets and on having built a, a growing strong community that helps each other make smart investments in the space. Um, so my background, I've worked at financial technology platforms that do this for, um, across assets for wall street. Uh, so, you know, I noticed that there was a gap in the market here where all the data and information that investors were getting was from first party sources, the marketplaces themselves. And, um, I just felt like there was a gap that had to be filled in helping people actually make smart decisions in this new market. Interesting. So does anything, you said there's a gap, so there is nothing here within the fractional space today? No. And there were a lot of people that weren't doing their homework in terms of going out and seeing, um, tying the market cap of assets that were being offered on marketplaces to most recent sales, um, and actually doing their homework on what they could expect by way of returns, uh, comparing these assets across marketplaces, uh, so that's what we do. We, we we focus on data aggregation to help people actually look at the returns of these different assets and pull out different inferences. Uh, for example, whether it's like by sector or by um, how assets perform based on their price per share at IPO. Uh, there's a lot to dig into here. And that's our goal. That's super cool. And so if if, if I take myself out of the fractional ownership market and I think about the other investable markets out there what company mostly mirrors what you're trying to do for the fractional space just so i can contextualize it 
Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, this is lofty, but let's consider it a Bloomberg terminal of the I fractional like share alternative asset investing uh, space. Hey, if you don't have a if you don't have a lofty goal, then you, <laughs> then <laughs> you know where are you going to end up? And so that's good. All right. So so you know so this is Russell Lieberman, you know, head of Alton Insights, which is you know the the Bloomberg terminal for fractional shares uh, and in alternative assets. And so, you know, we've spoken so far about how uh, you can purchase shares of a sports card, uh, participate in the IPO, 120 days later, start trading those shares. Hopefully they've gone up. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I'm curious now, you know, how big is this space today? You know, there's you mentioned a couple of companies or more than a couple of companies that are in the space. You know, are 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 the market caps big within the fractional space? Like, where where, where are they ranging? Yeah, they range. Um, the high would be uh, there's a Monet painting on Masterworks that is hovering around seven million dollars in valuation. Um, that's your highest market cap. Um, they can be as small as we've seen a couple cards come onto uh, platforms at around 8,000. And I believe there's even a Super Mario Brothers 3 game that came uh, onto a platform for around 5,000. So they can really range in, in, um, in value. Uh, the space as a whole has seen a ton of venture capital money a uh, huge influx recently in, in Series A rounds, um, Series B rounds, uh, into these different core marketplaces that we we actually list on altoninsights.com under marketplaces. Uh, we focus on like a core seven, six of them, call it. Um, but yeah, th- there's a, a lot of venture attention, I'll call it, on the space right now. Why? Why do you think that? You know, we'll go into what those marketplaces are in a second, but you know, why, why is there so much venture attention to this space? Um, you know, what does this space unlock that venture capitalists and angel investors are so excited about? Or what is it that this, this does? Well, I think in the same way that you see um, investors, let's call it um, young investors getting into investing via Robinhood. Um, this is a space where investors would never have access to these assets. They, in a lot of cases, have a passion for them. So it's not just that um, they're they're in this game looking for profit, but there's, there's a passion element and a profit element, which is really exciting. Um, so especially if you're new to investing, I think this strikes a huge chord because you're familiar with some of these assets uh, and you, you have a certain passion and love for them already. And then to add in the additional let's call it bonus of being able to potentially profit off of uh, owning fractional shares of them is just an amazing concept. One of my uh, best friends who was my college roommate, um, it w- grew up in Saratoga Springs, New York. And for those that know Saratoga Springs, New York, it's the horse town. Um, mm-hmm. It's a town where the uh, Saratoga racetrack is and um, there's uh, a fancy race. Well, there's many races all throughout the summer, but there's also uh, uh, a big race at the end of the year. Uh, and um, uh, he sort of grew around horses. On a side note, I'm a huge Dave Matthews Band fan, and Saratoga Springs is also home to Saratoga Performing Arts Center, nice. which is one of the best places to see the Dave Matthews Band. But I digress. Um, with that said, he, I was talking to him this summer, 
and I and I'll remember this day. I I, I remember it like vividly. Um, I was wa- I was out for a walk. It was one night. I think I was maybe walking the dogs around the block. Uh, and I'm talking to him, and he's like, "I just invested in a couple of horses." And I was like, "You bought horses?" And because I what I know about horses, they seem to be expensive. Um, and uh, I was I was like, "There's no way you bought horses." And he's like, "No, no, no. I bought shares in horses." And he's like, I saw this one horse, it was listed, and this thing is going to win the Kentucky Derby. And I was like, right, there's no way that you bought a share in a horse that's going to win the Kentucky Derby. Fast forward, the the, the horse won the Kentucky Derby. Authentic. The horse just won whatever, yeah, was authentic. Just won the other big race that just happened. And... Uh, uh, Ryan, Ryan has a share in those. And apparently now the stud fees for that horse are going to be through the roof right. and that's where they're going to make a ton of their money. Um, and so I, I remember giving him a hard time about buying like shares in a horse. Um, but he's now laughing at me, showing me the checks he's receiving for that, that respective horse. Um, and so it's real, it's legit. Um, and, uh, so you know, it's a, it's a growing space and, and, uh, you know, it's fascinating to watch. Uh, but that was how this whole fractional space hit me, uh, personally, uh, this summer through, through my buddy Ryan. Um, but it's, it's fascinating. So going back to, to, you know, you're, you were talking about the marketplaces and, you know, there's, you know, horse marketplaces, you know, there's, there's artwork, you know, there's sports cards now, and, you know, clearly dollars are coming in from venture capitalists to, to stand up these marketplaces, you know, as I, as I look at the marketplaces, you know, I see, you know, uh, share prices, I see market caps, I see other sort of metrics, you know, from your perspective, who's looking at the data, you know, what are the metrics that a consumer, so, you know, a potential retail buyer of these shares should be looking at, you know, how do I know what's a good buy versus necessarily, you know, a bad, a, a poor or bad decision there? You know, what, what, what should I be looking at? Yeah, I, we, we try through um, Twitter and you should go sign up for altoninsights.com, honestly, and have a look at our asset table for this information. Um, there's different inferences yep. that you can pull um, by asset class um, or otherwise by um, price per share that are really interesting. Um, the, the market cap itself does, you know, it's, it can be a vanity metric at times. It, it doesn't always um, directly impact the, how the, the shares will trade on the secondary market. Um, but what it does, you know, what we've seen one inference, for example, is that lower, um, lower dollar price per shares uh, do definitely trade higher. And I think that's because you see some people coming on to a platform and they just want to make a, a tiny investment into some of these assets in order to own a piece of them. And, um, you know, that, that keeps me up at night a little bit because I actually want people to make smart investments that ties the value of the asset to, uh, the fractional share of the asset. And then there's some people that just don't care because they want, you know, five shares of whatever it may be that they're going out to purchase. So, um, it throws off the market cap of where an asset should be trading. And we don't want that. I don't think anyone in the industry actually wants that to be the case. So I'm sitting in front of the asset table now and, you know, I'm looking at everything and, you know, the top, I don't know, I see the top 12 assets just because that's what's in front of me right now. But, you know, those all look like super highly curated assets. And so, 
you know, if I am going to any one of the marketplaces for, you know, fractional ownership, are they curating because they believe these are the, you know, greatest assets that have the highest upside or are they create, are they curating because they get the highest yield from those assets? Um, do they curate, you know, how much should I trust the marketplaces so that if they place an asset up on the marketplace, that this has a great shot of appreciating or, you know, do I, you know, really need to continue to do my homework and just because they have a certain Andy Warhol or a certain Michael Jordan or something up there, you know, will that, you know, will that automatically appreciate just by them, you know, having it up there? Yeah, it's a mix. Um, I do give the, um, you know, I, I give the marketplaces credit, especially the employees that are going out and sourcing these assets. Um, they do find a really great collection of exciting assets on these platforms. Uh, but you should honestly do your homework on each of them and not just like jump in because there's an exciting name tied to it. Um, it's based on availability. It's based on consumer interest. It can be based on trends and timing. For example, as we saw with like Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, um, it, it, you know, there's various factors at play here. Some of them are cultural and some of them are tied more strictly to um, the financials of the purchase. But um, there's no, you know, I would say that the, I give, again, I give full credit to the marketplaces and those employees finding those assets because they're the reason that there's been such hype behind these different um, fractional marketplaces. Um, but you should definitely do your homework. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, getting back to the business of the fractional side, you know, how does the business model work for any of the marketplaces? You know, how do they make money? Um, and, you know, you don't have to name a marketplace specifically, um, but, you know, in general, how do the marketplaces make money? And how do you think that could change over time if it does? Yeah. Um, this is from a business standpoint to me, super interesting right now. I think we, we may see some shifting in the business model. Part of the reason for the large venture raises right now is for these marketplaces to go out and focus on capturing market share as opposed to, um, being overly focused on, um, you know, how much they capture per dollar of, of per dollar invested on their platform. Um, so the answer to your question is that there's different business models in the space. Um, there's actually on one platform, there's a hedge fund model where instead of two and 20, it's one and 20. So they take carry every year. And then they also take um, a part of the appreciation when they have an exit. Um, a more standard model of what we see of the marketplaces that we cover. Um, you know, if I had to put a number on it, I would say 95 for 95 cents of your, of your dollar goes to the actual product that you're investing in, um, which is pretty great considering you don't have to pay for insurance and um, you don't have to house the asset or, or really worry about anything. Um, so there, there's different. But that 5% then goes back to the market. Yeah, it, it could be, there's various ways that um, it could take shape. So I think the industry is still sort of figuring itself out in a way. It could be part of, you know, there, there are marketplaces that they actually put in let's call it minimum 2% they, out of their own bank account, they purchase at least 2% of every asset they put on their platform. And then they also stand to profit if they do a really good job with 
sourcing the asset um, and they get it under market. And then three months later, when they're prepared to put it on their platform, you know, they're still posting it for a fair market cap. Um, but the asset has appreciated tremendously over, since they purchased it and when it's being listed. Um, and then there's also just like a flat 5% call it fee that I think we'll see more and more of as the industry, you know, now that after things settle down a little bit, once, um, you know, once that market share is, once these different marketplaces are comfortable with the market share that they've gone out and captured. So we've talked about assets and investments and IPOs, and that usually leads to conversations about regulation Mm -hmm. and FINRA and things along those lines. How has FINRA and other governmental bodies participated in this space and how are they sort of um, sort of mapping uh, how this space will play out over the next couple of years? You know, I actually, long story short, um, I won't I won't put your your listeners to sleep with with the, the entire legal process, but I'll give you like a 30 <laughs> second rundown. But I actually love that these are regulated securities because I think especially starting out, it gives it gives a um, a vote of confidence to anyone that's investing on these platforms that they're investing in. SEC, FINRA, uh, regulated securities, they're registered securities. This isn't, uh, they're not getting hustled by any means. These are legitimate products and legitimate marketplaces. Um, So long story short is the industry started out as part of the 2012 Jobs Act uh, when the government opened the door to crowdfunding. And then at that time, crowdfunding was only available to accredited investors. Then in 2015, there was an, an amendment to that jobs act that opened the door for these it's called regulation a plus securities and that's what allows non-accredited investors to participate uh in funding an asset jointly uh via crowdfunding so what you're seeing is each time one of these assets comes to a fractional marketplace it's it's effectively a let's call it a micro ipo where whether it's a thousand shares or ten thousand shares it's it's a company going to market through this IPO, um, and and it it's regulated. So, do you think that there's going to be increased regulation in this space or decreased regulation in this space as we move forward? Um, I know earlier this month there was act, they actually like raised some of the caps in crowdfunding um, in terms of the amount that companies oh. are allowed to crowdfund okay. up, up to. Um, I don't know if the incoming administration will have an impact on that sort of regulation. Um, I I think it's going in, the, in a direction that um, it's too early to say. I, I'm hoping for obviously. I think it's the right amount of regulation right now. Um, I, I you know I obviously hope that they don't try to clamp down further. Um, I think it's honestly a, it's it's a a fun way for speculators and investors to participate um, and learn about investing in alternative assets that um, just would not be readily available to most of us without these fractional marketplaces in existence. Like it's not a brand new concept in that you mentioned your buddy who invested in a horse, like, yeah, me, you and your best friend, we could, we could go and, and, you know, crowdfund an investment in a horse, but Mm -hmm. doing it over one of these regulated platforms um, with a bunch of strangers. It feels just, a little safer. It, it, yeah. Abs- yeah, well, exactly. Through a, a registered, uh, regulated entity, feels a lot safer. 
Absolutely. So I can't believe we've been going for over 30 minutes at this point, which is, which is awesome. Nice. I've got a couple more questions. I got a couple more questions as we sort of wind down. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, if there's, let's say a 1953 Mickey Mantle IPO on one of the platforms, which I believe there is, will the value of that card go up on all other, uh, platforms? You know, does that happen? You know, because to me, it seems like, hey, you know, there's a card or asset, you know, going to IPO on a platform. Let me just go buy it in other places. <laughs> and and maybe with the increased attention on it, you know, the, that that value goes up. Does that is that how it works or does not work like that? Um, love that question. I don't think that we're quite there yet in terms of the popularity that um, a specific card gains by being featured on a fractional marketplace. But I actually think it's a potentially really good investment strategy. If you can't go afford, if you can't afford a certain card, uh, you can still go invest in a lower grade of the card or a similar card, like a second year. If you can't afford the rookie, whatever it may be. Um, and I, I think there's a lot to be said about you know. For people that are familiar with the fractional marketplaces, when you go see a card, um, there's definitely some association with the fact, oh, oh wow, I saw this card on a fractional marketplace. So yeah. um, I don't think it's yet directly, like when you go then check eBay, for example, I don't think the prices are immediately correlated in the way that they're trading on fractional marketplaces. But I also wouldn't be surprised if we got there. It's, it's not a one-to-one -one right now. Uh, and that's for various reasons that are pretty, you know, whether it's like the price per share of the asset that I alluded to earlier, where like if it's a low price per share, you'll see people kind of throw the market cap off. Um, but uh, it, it's not it's not a one to one, but I think it's a good theory. You know, there are folks listening to this that are probably super intrigued about the fractional ownership space. There are folks that are listening to this that already probably have shares of of uh, the Mickey Mantle or or whatever. Um, you know, my question to you would be, you know, if I'm serious about the space and I'm looking at uh, buying fractional ownership shares as a means of diversification of my portfolio or because I'm just a hobbyist and I'm intrigued in a particular card, how should I use Alton Insights? Like if I'm going to really study the space, you know, what do really good users do on Alton Insights to stay up to speed on what's happening and where they should pay attention? Yeah, it's really, um, I think there's a ton of value in aggregating the data. Um, we allow you to sort it in different ways, whether it's sector or um, that price per share that I alluded to or marketplace. Um, and being able to visualize this across marketplaces also now that we're seeing more secondary markets um, come to fruition. Um, so basically use it to do your homework. It makes it really easy to do your homework. You don't have to create any spreadsheets on your own. Just come use our platform. Uh, we have the information that you need, uh, to make smarter investments. I love it. Well, thank you, Russell. I appreciate you taking time, uh, and spending, you know, half an hour with us here at the midlife crisis cards podcast. Uh, this, this is like a whole new space that we're sort of, you know, watching, and there's so much attention on it from the dollars pouring in from the investors. You know, I guess a lot of people believe that this is an area that, you know, will take off within the sports card space. But what's interesting to me, you know, as an investor is um, it's not new. And what's nice about that is the behavior exists in other spaces. 
And so, you know, if sports cards are something we believe that will be around for a while, similar to how, you know, fractional ownership and auto, et cetera, has been around, uh, then it only makes sense for it to come into this sector. Uh, and so, you know, I find that super interesting um, and uh, frankly exciting. Um, so, you know, keep us in the loop as you build out Alton so that, uh, you know, we could continue to update the audience and learn more about the fractional space. But I truly appreciate the time today, Russell. All right. I definitely will. Thank you for having me on. It was fun. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks, Darren. Well, that was an awesome interview with Alton Insights, Russell Lieberman. And what's nice about doing these podcasts weekly is that I can go back and edit and update the podcasts um, before they go live. And so similar to what we did in the beginning of this podcast, where we talked about what was happening in the fractional ownership world, I'm going to go touch base there one more time just to give a little more context and color. So in the beginning, I, I alluded to this Pokemon, this 1999 Pokemon set, um, which Rally Road bought for $119,000 in the golden auctions back in May of this year, by the way. The set IPO'd on Rally Road on June 26th with $125,000 market cap, which was about $25 a share, and doubled in its first trading window on October 20th. On November 3rd, Rally Road received a $475,000 gross buyout offer for the set. Remember, they bought it for $119,000, just got an offer for $475,000 to buy the entire set. At $400,000 net, or $80 a share, it would have represented a 221% ROI for those who bought and held it at the IPO price. However, the majority of shareholders rejected the buyout offer at $475,000. Today marked the asset's second trading window, and it did not disappoint. The set traded up 200% and now has a market cap of $750,000 or $0.150 cents a share. Sorry, $150 a share where it was originally purchased for $25 a share. You know, we all can do the math. That's a nice appreciation. At 500% plus, it now is the highest ROI on Rally Road and across all fractional marketplaces. Just wanted to give a little more context and color as to what this fractional ownership market uh, really uh, uh, is doing. Um, and so... As always, you know, be safe, do your homework. Don't think everything is going to have this type of appreciation. You know, a lot of us have been in the sports card market and it's only gone up. Uh, you know, uh, the markets are markets. They go up and they go down. You wouldn't have a market otherwise. And so I'm not saying the markets are going to go down tomorrow, but be prepared and, and uh, do your homework out there. Um, the fractional space is fascinating, um, and I hope you took a whole bunch of insights away from the, the conversation with Russell uh, and look forward to a lot more exciting upcoming podcasts with various uh, 
part of the sports card ecosystem, including the next part of the ecosystem, which we're going to dive deep into card distribution, the business of distribution, how cards get to hobby shops and how cards get to uh, the Walmarts and Targets of this world, uh, and what really life is like as a large-scale distributor amongst the sports card hobby ecosystem. Until then, stay classy. And let's go next. Thank you for listening to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast. We had a ton of fun putting this episode together. And we want to thank you for listening. We want to hear from you. So please don't be a stranger. You can reach Darren at, at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram or at dherman76 on Twitter. If you want to stop by and check out our collection of cards, listen to other podcasts, or have fun configuring our new product, the Cardboard Box, a set of hand-curated sports cards delivered to your door, come visit MidlifeCrisisCards.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay classy, and let's go Knicks.